Our next speaker is Richard Dennis, who's uh, the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. Um, uh, 20 years experience of working in policy and policy, policy analysis and development, and is also an adjunct professor at the Australian National University, uh, co-author of the best-selling Affluenza with uh, Clive Hamilton, and his latest book is called Econobabble, and I'm sure uh, what we're about to hear is not Econobabble. Please welcome Richard Dennis. That's right. PowerPoint is a way of being seen but not heard. That's right. I've just shocked people by suggesting I don't need the clicker for the PowerPoint presentation. I um, firmly believe that power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apologies, Peter. You were good with your slides. Um, uh, look, uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me along today and, uh, uh, and thank you uh, for... Um, for putting your time into uh, two very important things. One, uh, the profession uh, of nursing, and two, uh, engaging in professional activity to get even better at it. It's, Peter's just talked a lot about money, but uh, ultimately, at the end of our lives, I think people want uh, probably more nurses around and fewer dollars. So, uh, so thank you for the work you do. Um, let me just take off um, from where Peter left off. Um, he's, he's spot on. I, I've taught introductory economics for 20 years and uh, the textbooks require me to teach students that money, uh, the, the amounts of money matter and the distribution doesn't, but uh, my conscience doesn't prevent me from then explaining that to people in a bit more context. So let me, uh, let me give you another way of thinking about what Peter said, which is common sense, of course, that that distribution matters. And it's also important to understand that in a society as uh, diverse and changing, yet in some sense still, still dominated by uh, particular forms of media and in turn celebrity, it's very hard for people to get a good sense of what the rest of the world looks like. And as Peter showed you, most people don't know uh, what an average income is, and we've done similar work at the Australia Institute, and the general conclusion is whatever someone earns, they think that's average. Okay, it's quite sort of sad in some sense when you realise that people earning forty to sixty thousand dollars a year think most people earn forty to sixty thousand a year. That people earning thirty to forty thousand dollars a year don't think that the that they're way below average. They they are. Uh, for full-time workers, they're well below average, but because most people they work with uh, probably earn similar amounts of money, uh, they don't perhaps realise just uh, how the system is stacked against them. But let me give you a simple example to explain the difference between kind of what the data says and what people experience. Um, the average Australian male uh, is, in the old language, about five foot ten. Now, you might not be able to tell this, but I'm not a particularly tall man myself. I'm actually short. I am officially below average. Not far below average, but a bit. Now, in a room this size, uh, the average person here, uh, the average height of people in this room will conform to the average in a broad community. And it doesn't matter if someone really tall walks into the room. If someone who was seven foot tall walked into this room, that'd have very little impact on the average. But what someone really tall does have is an influence on how other people feel about their height. 
So being of average height in an average room, people who are average feel average. But when you stand them next to someone who's seven foot tall, not surprisingly, they feel a little bit short. The problem is in our society, we put wealth on this incredible pedestal. So when Gina Reinhart was worth $20 billion, and the poor dear's less than $10 billion now, um, I know, it's a tragedy, isn't it? And you know what? It wasn't even the mining tax that did it. <laughs> right, if only. Uh, but she's making do on, on her 10 bill. Um, but the point is, when people who earn $200,000 a year, $300,000 a year, $400,000 a year hear that Gina Reinhart's got $10 billion, do you think that even though they're earning five times average income, they feel rich? No. They feel like an average person standing next to a basketballer. So humans are more complicated than the economics. This is a shock to you, I know. Uh, humans are more complicated than the economics textbooks suggest, but we can still explain why it is that rich people don't feel rich. The simple answer is we've created a society where rich people hang around with rich people, okay? And poor people hang around with poor people. Now, is that the kind of society that we set out to build? Most people suggest not. Is it the society we've built and are continuing to build? Absolutely. Do property prices reinforce it? Absolutely. Do people working long hours and being unable to play team sport where they might actually mix with someone else affect that? Absolutely. So when we build a society where rich people never meet poor people, we shouldn't be too surprised that rich people don't feel rich. Indeed, they might actually complain that they're doing it tough. Okay, so uh, I just want to do a quick Twitter poll. I don't do PowerPoint, I'm, I'm going to tweet. So is there anyone here knows what Twitter is? Yeah, okay, just checking. All right, so I've used the hashtag NSNMAC on. It's very, very easy. Uh, I've just tweeted a little Twitter poll which is to ask you a simple question. If you can find that and answer it, that's great. I'll come back to the answers in a minute. If you can't, doesn't matter. The person sitting next to you probably will. Because um, I want to talk about inequality and what we think about it. Because what Peter's described is a problem. Now, there's lots of problems in the world. Inequality is one of them. But should we do something about it? I'm sure in your workplace, you could identify all sorts of problems but should we do something about it? Maybe at your kid's school we can identify a problem. The fact that there's a problem doesn't mean we have to solve it. And indeed, what you might see as a problem I might actually think is a fantastic outcome. It might be Gina Reinhardt having just killed off the mining tax, for example. You might see it as a problem. She might see it as an opportunity. So identifying that inequality is growing is important, and I'm glad Peter's done it. I agree with what he said. And, the Australian Institute's done lots of similar work, but identifying that inequality exists is different from proving that we should do something about it. And indeed, unfortunately, I think my profession plays a particularly disproportionately important role in our public debates, because people identify problems all the time, and my profession, more than any other profession, is wheeled out 
to say, suck it up. My profession is wheeled out to say, sure, we could do something about inequality, but if we did that, you know it would destroy the economy, don't you? You know you'd all lose your jobs, don't you? You know no one would ever invest in Australia ever again, don't you? Now, if that seems a bit exaggerated, just listen more carefully next time someone proposes that we collect more tax from rich people and spend it on health. Listen to what is said. Next time someone says maybe the, uh, the rent seekers that Peter described should pay capital gains tax and, or more capital gains tax or, uh, or, or resource rent taxes, just listen carefully to the arguments that are used to rebut any efforts to reduce inequality. They pretty much boil down to, yes, of course, we could all be bleeding hearts and collect more tax from people whose income's risen 1,000% and spend more money on dental care for poor people. You're right, we could do that, but if we did, the economy would falter and your kids would lose your jobs. That's what jobs and growth in the election was all about. We have to cut taxes for big business if you want your kids to have jobs. Choose, which is it? What do you want? Do you want your kids to have a job? Yeah, right, then you must support tax cuts for big business. That's what we just heard for eight weeks. And that idea that my profession is so proficient in pushing out into public debate is the kind of trade-off that Peter alluded to, a trade-off between income inequality and growth. Now, the fact that the data doesn't support it is precisely irrelevant. It doesn't matter that the data doesn't support it. It's a powerful argument, and it's used powerfully by my profession. So uh, what I want to talk uh, briefly about is the way, and I call these arguments econobabble, it's not actually economics. You go ask actual economists about these claims and they'll say, oh, that's, that's not really true. But within our public debate, these arguments are, are mounted very forcefully. So I just want to check my Twitter poll and see how you guys have done. Where are we? So my Twitter poll question was, should we close tax loopholes to collect more revenue and spend more on health and education? And you pinko lefties, 98% of you said yes. <laughs> but let me be devil's advocate here. Let me be devil's advocate. We are not going to do that. We're not. We're not going to collect more tax. We're not going to close loopholes. We're not going to spend a lot more money fixing the disgraceful dental system in Australia. We're not going to do that. And the main argument for not doing that is the ridiculous, evidence-lacking, fallacious, self-serving argument that were we to do so, it would harm the economy. Good, keep laughing. Every time you hear a politician say it, laugh. Point to your friend and say, did you hear that? Because we've created a public debate where if we suggest that we collect more tax revenue 
by closing loopholes and superannuation, by closing loopholes on capital gains, if we were to do that and spend more money on, on important job-creating services like teachers, nurses and dental care, that to do that would somehow wreck the economy. And it's fake economics that are used to maintain a democracy in which the overwhelming percentage of the broader population, not just nurses at a conference, the overwhelming majority of the population agree that closing down tax loopholes used by the rich to spend the money on important services is a great thing. And the only thing stopping us doing it is the econobabble used by powerful people in powerful positions talking down to other people. So I want to give you some tricks for how to decode econobabble. I want to give you some tricks to feel confident in public debate, even if you don't feel confident in your uh, underlying knowledge of, of macroeconomics or fiscal policy. Because to be clear, you've got far more knowledge than I do, far more knowledge than I do about the health system. Okay, and most people in Australia know far more than me about most things. The fact that most people aren't trained economists is precisely irrelevant when it comes to a democratic debate about whether we want to have a health system that looks more like Sweden or more like Singapore. That's not an economic choice. That's a democratic choice. And if you and your friends and your family want one that looks like the one we used to have or looks even better, if you really wanted one, there's nothing to stop you from having one except the political power to demand it and expect it. Now, the best trick, the absolutely best trick used by powerful voices to silence public debate about these things is to talk about the market and what the market wants and what the market needs. Because if we want... So I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, government suggests it's going to close superannuation tax concessions, raising tens of billions of dollars a year. It's going to crack down on capital gains tax concessions and negative gearing, making houses cheaper and collecting tens of billions of dollars a year. We can do this, and we're going to spend a lot more money on health and education. How do I, how do I stop this happening? Oh, the markets would react angrily. The markets would react very... They'd mark us down. The markets. Well, what is a market? A market is a place where buyers and sellers come together. So picture the fish market. Right? You've gone to the fish market and there's a whole bunch of people that want to buy fish and there's a whole bunch of people that want to sell fish and they're there at the fish market. Ask yourself the question... What does the fish market want? What does the fish market demand? Does that seem like a stupid question? Hold that thought. A stock market is a place where people who own shares and people who want to own shares come together. It's like a fish market, but for shares. So ask yourself, what does the stock market want? What does the stock market demand? The stock market, like the fish market, wants and demands nothing. So when we hear that the market reacted angrily 
at suggestions that we close capital gains tax concessions, what you heard was the following. Rich people who own a lot of shares reacted angrily today <laughs> at the thought that they should pay more tax. Which, by the way, is fine. It's a democracy. They're allowed to be entirely angry about something, and they might even have a point. But talking about the market is just a conobabble designed to strip away a simple democratic point. It's not the market that reacted angrily. It was rich people who reacted angrily to the idea that rich people should pay some more tax. Now that's up to us in a democracy to decide amongst ourselves what's fair. How much should a CEO get paid? Should they get paid the minimum wage? Should they get paid twice the minimum wage? I don't know. Peter doesn't know. All right, but Sue Richardson, who he quoted, reckons that, well, I reckon they're getting paid a bit much now and less would be good. And if as a society we can agree that less would be good, then we're pretty much all the way there. So, unfortunately, economic jargon, economic language isn't used to help inform or educate a population. It's used to silence a population. In the same way that Catholic priests once gave Latin masses to working class Catholics, not to persuade, but to silence, we now have the ridiculous situation that if you can stand it and tune into Q&A, you'll see non-economist politicians talking to a million non-economist voters in the language of economics. If I didn't speak Japanese and you didn't speak Japanese, it would be odd for us to choose Japanese as a language to converse in. <laughs> Except if I didn't want to converse except if I just wanted to tell you that there is no alternative, that we can't collect more tax and spend more on health. If I wanted to keep you out of the debate, then I would choose to speak a language that you yourself couldn't participate in. So to wrap up, because I don't use PowerPoint, so I can always finish on time. Um, <laughs> and so did Peter, by the way. Um, uh, so, to wrap up, we've just had a debate about jobs and growth. Leaving aside the fact that I've never heard a politician say, vote for me and I'll destroy jobs and ruin growth, <laughs> what, what, you know, to, they're not really policies that were being proposed. Um, I think it was Christina Keneally pointed out that they were nouns, not verbs. Okay? So, We've just had a debate about creating jobs and growth. Well, let me tell you, you guys work in one of the most labour-intensive, one of the most labour-intensive industries in the Australian economy. Per million dollars spent on health services, we create more jobs than almost any other activity. Mining, on the other hand, creates the least jobs per million dollars of activity. We subsidise the Australian mining industry to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And every billion dollars spent subsidising a mine is a billion dollars that wasn't spent on health and education. 
and per million dollars, per billion dollars spent, you guys create around five times as many jobs as the same amount of money spent in mining. So here's a crazy, crazy way to create jobs. Collect more tax or reduce subsidies on industries that create almost no jobs and spend it in industries that employ not just a lot of people, but a lot of people whose job it is to help the rest of us. Crazy talk, I know, but when you strip away the econobabble, I assure you everything they say is completely crazy. Thank you very much.